Good morning, everyone. How lovely to be here, finally, with a bit of sun. <laughs> um, I don't do a lot of speaking, so, and I don't have a microphone, so please, if, I, if you don't hear, if you don't hear, just put your hand up. I, wait, then I might shut up. No, wait. <laughs> I don't know, just, just wave or something, because uh, I, I, I hate for you not to be able to hear, so please just let me know. So we're going to start with a chalice lighting which Nancy has written specially for us. Where's my helper? Oh, yeah. Oh, there you are. <laughs> <clears throat> the light of this chalice, lit worldwide, is the depth the abundance which brings us to grace, unmerited divine assistance, that miracle of light that is given to us gratuitously the moment we stop to look. Everything is the same, but this flame reminds us that we have a chance to dwell within it, within it differently. This flame is our freedom our light for changes on our way. This flame is our fluidity and our faith. Thank you, Nancy. <coughs> and now we're going to have a hymn. We're going to start with Morning Has Broken, number 280 in the Green Book.
lovely. Thank you. Now we have a children's story, which Helen is going to read for us. It was written by a friend of mine, um, Chief Jake Swamp from the Mohawk Nation. And it's based on their Thanksgiving address, which they speak at every meeting, every time the nation gets together. And it's an essential part of their spiritual tradition. And children, too, are taught to greet the world each morning by saying thank you to all living things. They learn that according to Native American tradition, people everywhere are embraced as family. Our diversity, like all the wonders of nature, is truly a gift for which we are thankful. And the illustrations are beautiful, so Mark is going to show them on this side, and Helen will be over here. <laughs> Can you all see marks, or do you want this? Do you want this as well? I can't yes. read upside down. So. <laughs> um, to be a human being is an honour, and we offer thanksgiving for all the gifts of life. Mother Earth, we thank you for giving us everything we need. Thank you, deep blue waters around Mother Earth. You are the force that takes thirst away from all living things. We give thanks to green grasses that feel so good against our bare feet, for the cool beauty you bring to Mother Earth's floor. <coughs> Thank you, good foods from Mother Earth our life sustainers, for making us happy when we are hungry. Fruits and berries, we thank you for your colour and sweetness. We are all thankful to good medicine herbs for healing us when we are sick. Thank you, all the animals in the world for keeping our precious forests clean. All the trees in the world, we are thankful for the shade and warmth you give us. Thank you, all the birds in the world, for singing your beautiful songs for all to enjoy. We give thanks to you, gentle four winds, for bringing clean air for us to breathe from the four directions. Thank you, Grandfather Thunder Beings, for bringing rains to help all living things grow. Elder Brother Sun, we send thanks for shining your light and warming Mother Earth. Thank you, Grandmother Moon, for growing full every month to light the darkness for children and sparkling waters. We give you thanks, twinkling stars, for making the night sky so beautiful and for sprinkling morning dewdrops on the plants.
spirit protectors of our past and present. We thank you for showing us ways to live in peace and harmony with one another. And most of all, thank you, Great Spirit, for giving us all these wonderful gifts so that we will be happy and healthy every day and every night. Thank you, Helen. Thank you, Mark. This changes everything. A story. It was late and dark in Mohawk territory on the border of New York and Ontario. It was the early 1990s. I was sitting low in an MX-7 Mazda, a lightweight sports car. One headlight was completely stoved in. The other one aimed up at the pine trees, illuminating a thick curtain of falling snow. We were traveling way too fast, and I could feel the little car fishtailing. The driver was a guy named Doug, a Mohawk, a Bear Clan member, who I'd been sent to write about. He was giving me what he calls Mohawk 101, a quick overview of his culture and his people and a bit about their religion. And he said this, our faith is a way of life. It isn't part of our life. It's the way we live. It's the complete opposite of the Christian religions. We believe the creator made the earth, made everything around us to make us happy. Our only job is to be thankful. It was a moment of clarity for me in the middle of the fog and the snow. It was a whole new understanding, really. It was so simple and so wise and so completely different from anything I'd heard before. Neuroscientists believe that we retain things more easily if we learn them when we're in a heightened emotional state, say, when we're going 70 miles an hour <laughs> on a deserted road, <laughs> in a foot of snow, miles from the nearest telephone. Perhaps that's why I remember it so well, but I don't think so. I think it put me on a path. This changes everything. Another story. I grew up a member of St. Helens Catholic community. It was radically liberal. The nuns played guitars and the Monsignor allowed girls to serve on the altar, even though they were banned at the time. One cool priest used to take us on retreats and he offered us a communion of Pepsi and potato crisps. <laughs> I was welcomed with my questions and my anger and everything else. But ultimately, none of it changed one fact, the idea of original sin. Babies born of sin, Jesus sacrificing himself to wash away our sins. How could the God that created this beautiful earth and all of us allow us to be so unworthy? Why was a blood sacrifice essential to faith? How could the God that created this... Oh, I just said that. <laughs> and if God loved us, as he surely must to send his son, then why are there so many conditions? Forrest Church, a univer Unitarian Universalist minister, said this about it in his 2004 Easter sermon. Universalists have always believed that God is love. No loving God could possibly behave in as petty 
or brutal a fashion, as does the god of Christian doctrine during Eastertide. And that's the core that I, of what I eventually came to. A higher power with the brilliance to create a butterfly wing and that little soft spot at the base of a baby's neck and the complete and unconditional love of a dog must be bigger, must be beyond whatever our human minds could comprehend. This changes everything. Now back to the Indians. I had not considered myself a Catholic for quite a while before the conversation with Doug. I could not be a member of an organization that judged me unworthy of leadership or holiness because of the way I was born. So I left, but I didn't move toward anything else. My interview with Doug, which I happily survived, was the start of many years of covering Native issues and getting to know leaders within that community. It was a great privilege. The Haudenosaunee, they're named, they were named the Iroquois by the French, are six Native nations whose traditional territory covers land in what today is Pennsylvania, New York, Ontario, and Quebec. More than 900 years ago, a man they call the Great Peacemaker, traveling in a stone canoe, sound familiar, <laughs> created a confederacy of peace among warring nations and appointed a council of chiefs which still sits today. Chiefs are chosen by clan mothers who carry the ultimate power. Only clan mothers can declare war since women are the givers of life. The peacemaker showed the chiefs that one arrow alone can be easily broken. Six arrows bound together cannot. He planted a tree of peace burying the weapons of war underneath it and put an eagle at the top to warn of approaching danger. If you look at the great seal of the US, you'll see an eagle with 13 arrows in its talon. Scholars believe it's a reference to the Haudenosaunee government as Ben Franklin spent time among the Onondaga nation and the founders adopted some of their practices into the US Constitution. When Orrin Lyons, a faith keeper and a chief in the Turtle Clan talks about the clash of cultures that happened when Christopher Columbus stumbled onto the Americas. He points to Genesis, coincidentally the home of original sin, where it says man should hold dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing. He says the cultural differences couldn't have been more severe when the people met. For within the Haudenosaunee way of life, the idea that the earth is here for humans to enjoy hinges on the sacred belief that all beings are part of one family. When the Haudenosaunee refer to Mother Earth, there's an emotional connection to the planet. When they dance, they believe they're massaging her and making her happy. And when they bury their dead, they fold them into a fetal position and put them back inside their mother, the earth. <coughs> Spirituality is the essence of our lives, says Chief Lyons. It is the spirit of things. It's what makes a tree grow and what makes a bird sing, what makes a human smile. Spirituality has its own force and has its own being, but it's something you can't see. It's the power of the universe. The Haudenosaunee calendar has eight ceremonies each marking a turn in the year. Most are feasts of thanksgiving, expressing gratefulness for the harvest. In midwinter, the people come together in their longhouse and sing ancient songs 
through the long nights. They believe the songs help their loved ones move on to the next world. One of the most important ceremonies is the strawberry, held after the first wild berries appear. It's important because the strawberries are the first fruits of the season, evidence that the Creator's promise is continuing and that for, li for humans, life on Earth is secure for another year. Chief Lyons told me that every traditional believer goes into the forest during strawberry season and eats the first wild berry they see because they believe the Creator has put all the medicine they're going to need for the following year into that berry. He also told me another story which I love. It affirms his connection and his people's connection to the natural world. He and some chiefs were in St. Louis at a conference and they decided to visit the animals at the zoo. And they spotted a bald eagle sitting way high up and its head was hanging low. And one of the chiefs took out a little turtle shell rattle and he shook it and he quietly sang their eagle song, the Indian's eagle song. And the eagle climbed down off his perch, spread his wings, and started to dance. And his feet took the same pattern that the Haudenosaunee do when they do their eagle dance in the longhouse. Although I've learned a lot from native people, I'm not a paid up member of the wannabe tribe. I'm not like the guy in North Norfolk who wears feathers and gets people to <laughs> go on vision quests, you know, on the, on the mudflats. I don't search for a wild strawberry or do an eagle dance. But I'm grateful to have the freedom to incorporate some aspects of the Haudenosaunee way of life into what I believe. That there's a benevolent force that loves us and wants us to be happy. That gratitude is powerful and in my mind is the only gift worthy of a higher being. This changes everything. Another story a little closer to home. My husband Amir is a Muslim from India and when we met in 1991 I paid very close attention to how he talked about the women in his family. I was worried about what I thought, what I thought were traditional Muslim values. I learned that his grandmothers were hugely accomplished. One was the first female newsreader in the world and the other was a leader in the Indian women's movement. And women are powerful within the family, too. Amir's communist grandparents were atheists. His granddad, Baba, was a freedom fighter and was in the Indian parliament for more than 40 years. He could have amassed a fortune with grace and favor homes and all that comes with a parliamentary career. But whenever people in need came to him, he gave it all away. He died at 96. He owned just two hats and three pajama suits. He greeted death happily, confidently even. He said, if there's a God, I will welcome his scrutiny of my life. I know I've led a good life, but if he is the sort of God who judges me because I didn't pray five times a day, I will have no time for him. <laughs> and I will have to accept my fate. If he doesn't exist, that'll be fine too. The most important thing is that I have done the good I could throughout my life. Strong morals and the impulse to do, a, do good in the world belong to people of many faiths and none. You don't have to sacrifice your freedom, devote yourself to dogma in order to give a good, live a good life, as we well know. The cool priest with the Pepsi communion, 
I learned recently that for years he was sexually abusing one of the teens who went on our retreats. And yeah, he's still a priest and he's still serving a congregation. My godless grandfather-in-law, he gave all his possessions away to the poor and they continue to maintain his flat in his memory. This changes everything. A few more stories of faith. During the time I was writing about the Indians, I was also the religion reporter for the Syracuse Herald Journal. Orthodox Jewish women told me how they would enter the quiet sanctuary of their synagogue and descend seven steps into a purification bath, fully immersing themselves so that not even the tips of their hair remained on the surface of the water. It's required for them when they finish their periods each month. To me, it seemed like an intrusion, a, a terribly oppressive sort of a practice. But they see it as a ritual, marking the transitions in their lives. Christian scientists told me about their belief that illness and disease are caused by individuals not loving God enough. To me, it sounded like, well, you've got cancer, and it's all your fault, because clearly you haven't, you know, loved God. And the only way and the only chance of cure would be to love him more. But then to hear them talk about the healings they'd experienced and to hear them about their belief that their health is a tangible gift from a loving God was genuinely moving. Some local women traveled to Medjugorje and came back with tales of the sun spinning. This is when, the, when they were having the visions. I think they're st still going on in Bosnia. They had rosary beads whose chains went from silver to gold when they held them up on the mountain. So I wanted to do a story about that. My editors were skeptical though. But at the same time, Medjugorje was a big story back then and we had a genuine local connection. And of course that's journalism gold. So the city editor put the story out on the front page that Sunday. And the day the paper came out, sitting at the breakfast table with his wife, the editor asked if she thought the story belonged on the front page. She didn't miss a beat. She said, I believe these people at least as much as I believe our congressman, and you're always putting what he says on the front page. <laughs> Fundamentalist Christian preachers, you know, the ones that don't believe in dinosaurs, were the ones that were most interested in my life, always asking if I had a personal relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ. I tried not to answer. But they would persist. They were wary of the liberal media and assumed they wouldn't be treated fairly unless I was one of them. So I came up with the phrase, I know what you mean. <laughs> Which I would say whenever they said something that was really bonkers. It comes across as agreement, but really it only says, I know what you mean. <laughs> mistake of telling my husband about that strategy and a few years later we were having an argument and I said I know what you mean and he said I know what you mean when you say I know what you mean <laughs> should have kept that to myself but in so many of the faiths I learned about freedom was the price of devotion and even though I could never be part of one of those very narrow faiths I don't resent their freedom to practice them you do have to wonder though where did all of this come from? <laughs> Evolutionary biologists think that belief in a higher power may be a human need, meaning everything that feels like the divine may in fact have come from within us. 
The research detailed in Dean Hamer's book, The God Gene, How Faith is Hardwired into Our Genes, is covered in an article in the Washington Post. And they said, evangelicals re reject his idea that faith might be reduced to chemical reactions in the brain. Humanists, agreeing with them for once, refuse to accept that religion is inherent in people's makeup. But Hamer, a behavioral geneticist, says his research shows that spirituality, the feeling of transcendence, is part of our nature. And he believes that a universal desire for spiritual fulfillment explains the growing popularity of non-traditional religion and the presence of hundreds of religions throughout the world. He said, we think that all human beings have an innate capacity for spirituality and that the desire to reach beyond oneself, which is at the heart of spirituality, is part of the human makeup. Scientists have even found a gene which makes some of us more prone to spiritual beliefs than others. So then how do we figure out what is within us and what is outside? When I was a Catholic, I knew what worship was for. It was an obligation. It was proof of our love of God. But if some of us are biologically driven towards church, how is our pursuit of a spiritual life any different from enjoying a good meal? And if faith and worship are driven by a biological imperative, do we even have the freedom that we value so much? There's an intriguing take on this, that place where the physical meets faith, in the novel Lying Awake by Mark Salzman. It's about a cloistered Carmelite nun who has ecstatic, mystical visions. This is how one of the visions is described. She became an ember, carried upward by the heat of an invisible flame. Higher and higher she rose away from all she knew. Powerless to save herself, she drifted up toward infinity until the vacuum sucked the feeble light out of her. More luminous than any sun, transcending visibility, the flare consumed everything. It lit up all of existence. In this radiance, she could see forever, and everywhere she looked, she saw God's love. <coughs> Doctors discover that she has a brain disorder, which could be causing the visions. So Sister John must then decide whether to have a life-saving surgery, even though there's a good chance that she will lose the visions, which have become an essential part of her faith. It's a painful dilemma for the nun, who wonders if she can maintain her spiritual life without her visions. So if it isn't our biology, or it very well could be our biology, making us faithful, there's also an element of geography. I did a course on indigenous history in the Americas, and one of the things we learned about was how religious practices, and even faith itself, was much more elaborate in warmer climates than cold ones. Think of the pyramids in what's now Mexico, the elaborate rituals, the sacred ball games with hundreds and hundreds of participants, the human sacrifices, and the festivals that attracted thousands. There's no way the Haudenosaunee in cold, dark, upstate New York could have created anything like that. They get 200 inches of snow a year. At a time when the Mayans were building the pyramids, the Haudenosaunee had to spend every waking hour farming, fishing, or hunting. 
The roots of so many faiths lie in warm climates because it's a lot easier to think about your next life if you're not worried about your next meal. But that also meant that spirituality was local, was tied to the culture of communities. It could be more forgiving, adapting to a small group of people's values. The professor in that course believes that the birth of the printing press created a tool of intolerance because it globalized faith. Practices and beliefs could be standardized and enforced across the world. Once the printed word surpassed communities' values, people were less accepting of diverse views. They looked for literal or historical faith, and they created tests. And that was when the world began to need Unitarians. <laughs> the first Gutenberg Bible became available in 1454, and just over 100 years later, in 1568, of course, we have the Edict of Torda, calling for toleration in religion, the first of its kind. But here's the thing. You know what scares the people of these traditional globalized faiths the most? Us and our freedom. When Amr and I eventually married, my mom's priest asked us to please choose between Islam and Catholicism and not adopt the fudge of Unitarianism. <laughs> I did a series of articles on intermarriage. All of the clergy I interviewed said they would prefer that couples choose one traditional faith, even if it didn't happen to be the one they practiced. They said Unitarianism was a mistake, and they all chose dogma over freedom. To them, even an opposing dogma is better than none. <laughs> they could not open their eyes to our freedom. By then, I'd realized that even though I cherished the life and words of Jesus, I couldn't be part of any faith which says there is only one way to get to heaven and only one way to live here on earth. So I joined a Unitarian church and discovered I could craft my own belief, and I immediately felt at home. There was a variety of reactions from friends and family. My mom wasn't happy. On learning I was attending a Unitarian church, she told me that I wouldn't be allowed to celebrate Christmas anymore. <laughs> We're still waiting for the Christmas police to turn up. <laughs> Others said, lucky you, you can believe whatever you want. Aren't you tired of that? Aren't you just, I'm so tired of that idea. I really, I don't mean, in academia, <laughs> in academia and science and countless other fields, you don't simply adopt a package of truths. Original research is essential. And yet, when we practice that in religion and in regards to faith, we're some sort of weirdos who believe whatever we want. Instead, I say, we believe what we must. I've been so fortunate. I've been witness to that place where strawberries become medicine, rosary beads transform, and a bath is a ritual of purification. All of it has made me a stronger Unitarian, <clears throat> devoted to the freedom that we cherish, and not just for myself, but for everyone around me. And this is what we must do for each other. I rejoice with Unitarians who walk a Christian path. I love that there are atheists worshiping among us. And naturally, with the inspiration of my Indian friends, I cherish Earth Spirit. I'm constantly wowed by our gifted leaders 
who offer wisdom, in, which in my sort of post-Catholic and rather eccentric way, I gain so much from. But they also inspire the people in the pews around me, who have their own histories and influences and Unitarian hyphens. I think it's wonderful. And yet, sometimes I think there's something missing among us. Because while as individuals, we think a lot about what we believe, we need to offer that same freedom to our fellow Unitarians. We're very good at I'll tell you about mine. <laughs> and a few say I'll tell you about mine because I think that's what you ought to believe. But we must more often ask, tell me about yours. I hope this week is a place we can do that to take advantage of our freedom and enrich all of our spiritual lives. Your path may not have taken you down a snowy road with a mohawk or into the heart of a Muslim family, but you each have stories about what brought you here. Let's really listen to them this week. Because in the end, it really is our freedom that changes everything. I to sing another hymn. 98, please. Love will guide us. Yes. in New Hampshire. Be like water. Run deep. Run clear. Fill any space to its own dimensions. Respond to the moon, to gravity. Change colors with the light. Hold your temperature longer than the surrounding air. Take the coast by storm. Go underground. Bend light. Be the one thing people need. 
even when they're fasting. Eat boulders <laughs> quietly. <laughs> Be a universal solvent. Blessed be.